Father, we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you'd make us attentive to your voice. And we ask, God, that you would do this by the power of your spirit who is at work in this place. And we ask this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So we began a new series a couple weeks ago entitled Everyday Spirituality, and we're talking about how God connects to the ordinary stuff in our lives, you know, that kind of stuff we do every day. I think oftentimes for Christians, our God is too small because he's too religious. You know, we think he's primarily interested in religious things like religious buildings and religious books and uh, religious lingo. (laughs) And of course, God is interested in those things, but only to the degree to which they're connected to the whole of life. Because God is not just our redeemer who rescues us from sin and death and who we gather each week to worship. God is also our creator, which means that God is the author of all of human existence And it stands to reason, doesn't it, that if God is the author of all of life, that he would have something to say, he would connect to every aspect of life. And so it's incumbent upon us, I think as followers of Jesus, to ask that question, what does it look like to follow Jesus in every aspect of life? And so we've been taking some of the most common everyday stuff that we do, and we've been giving some theological reflection to it. And so a couple weeks ago, we talked about leisure And Pastor Robert gave us a wonderful sermon on leisure. I thought it was so good. I was on vacation, and I just wanted to enjoy vacation and rest. And then last week, uh, we had a guest speaker that talked to us about work, which was also very insightful and interesting, I think, engaging and enlightening. And today, uh, we're not going to be talking about leisure or work. Today, we're going to be talking about my favorite ordinary activity, eating. I told our staff this week that I was going to be talking about a theology of eating, and they said, Josh, uh, we're going to listen, and and we hope that you mention steak that's put on a nice cast iron grill at about 500 degrees, where you get that nice crust and the salt and the chimichurri and the moist inside. Actually, they're making fun of me, telling me that I shouldn't say that because I say that so much when I preach. They're like, you're always talking about steak and chimichurri and so on and so forth. And then they said that they were going to have, they were going to create a bingo game as a staff and write down on the bingo sheet all of the words that I might regularly say in a sermon. And when I said those, they were going to, and then at one point they were going to shout out. Anyway, they were making fun of me. (laughs) And I wanted to share that with you because it hurt me and I want you to feel my pain. But today, I want to talk about a theology of eating. Now, it's interesting, the Bible has a lot to say about eating, a a shocking amount about eating. You open up uh, the Bible, the very first gift that God gives to his creation is the gift, uh, the second, actually second only to the gift of existence, is the gift of food. And God then plants a garden to provide food for his people. And then the first command that he issues is a prohibition regarding what? Regarding eating. Uh, The first, uh, uh, actually, you know, grand permission that he gives is a permission to eat from every tree of the garden. You get to the end of the Bible and there's another invitation to come once again and to eat from the tree of life. You open up uh, the Bible and again, you go to the Torah, the first five books, over 200 times there's instructions regarding eating. And throughout the Bible, this is a theme that carries through all the way into the ministry of Jesus. 
You know, Jesus described his ministry at one point like this. He said, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, which is kind of an interesting way for Jesus to describe his work in this world. He came eating. You know, one uh, commentator on the Gospel of Luke, which has as a theme, a major theme, the, the table fellowship, the meals of Jesus, he said, throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either on his way to a meal, he's coming from a meal, or he's at a meal. But the point is is that Jesus is eating a lot. And so this one pastor entitled his sermon series, Eating His Way Through the Gospel of Luke, which I think is a a clever title. But actually, uh, New Testament scholars will point out that one of the core features of the ministry of Jesus was his table fellowship. It was who he ate with. And it was one of the ways in which Jesus was bringing the kingdom of God to bear on earth. It was who he was sharing meals with, who he was eating with. You know, and then, of course, there are extensive sections in the New Testament about eating. Romans 14 and 15 is about eating. And 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 is about eating. And the, the very first controversy that, you know, issued in, in the book of Galatians is, is regarding people who Peter ate with that, or wouldn't eat with, that Paul ate with, and they got in a fight over that. And the first command that's issued for the Gentile mission as the gospel goes out into the world uh, was a prohibition on the one hand against sexual immorality, and then the other prohibition was against cell phones. And... Um, <laughs> Actually, no, it was against, it wasn't against cell phones, it was against eating meat that was offered to idol or animals that had been strangled or eating blood. And so there's a whole lot in the Bible about eating. And Paul issued that command, he says, whatever you do, in word or in deed, he says, uh, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. But that raises a question, doesn't it? I mean, what does it mean to eat to the glory of God. I mean, what are we talking about? Uh, Does that just mean that you have a great ability to slow cook pork shoulder over several hours so that it falls apart? Are you feeling me, Luther? Succulent, bar, I mean, it's just like we're, come on. But what does it mean to, to eat to the glory of God? And that's a question I want us to reflect on today. And I want to suggest that the Bible is seeking to shape and form us into a very particular community of eaters. The Bible wants to mold and shape us to be a kind of people that eats in a very peculiar and particular and specific kind of way. And I want to suggest that the Bible invites us to become eaters that are characterized by four things. We could say a whole lot more about this, but I'm limiting the biblical witness to these four things. I want to suggest that the Bible invites us to become eaters that eat with gratitude, that eat with awareness, that eat with an open hand, and finally, that eat with Jesus. And so I want to invite you to consider these four biblical principles of four ways in which the Bible wants to shape us as a community of eaters. Number one, the Bible wants us to eat with gratitude. It calls us and invites us to eat with gratitude. You know, the scriptures say that every good and perfect gift comes from above. It comes from the Father of light in whom there is no shadow or turning. Every good gift that you and I enjoy in this world 
is originally sourced. It finds its origin in God himself. And as we mentioned earlier, the first gracious gift God gives to his creation after the the primal gift of existence, because look, your existence is not a given, it's on donation. Your existence is on donation from the gracious hand of God who himself is the very ground, the very origin, the very source of existence. Well, the very first gift God gives to us, his creation, after the gift of existence is the gift of food. Look at what it says in the text. Genesis 1, 29 to 30. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. You know, the, the whole world belongs to God. Creation belongs to God. And, says, and God says, and I'm giving some of it to you. They will be yours for food and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky. It's interesting, the gifts do not stop with God's gifts to creation. This is the the source, the wellspring, that infinite ocean of generosity. And he pours out his gifts on his human creatures and he turns to his animal creatures and he says to you, I'm going to give everything that has, to everything that has breath of life and I give every green plant for food and it was so. And then in Genesis 2, God plants a garden. And I love the way this is framed. It says, now the Lord God planted a garden in the east in Eden. And so God here is pictured as a gardener who is planting this beautiful garden east of Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And here the author is identifying the quality, the nature of the gift that God has given to us in food. The food God has given is both beautiful and it's good. He says it's beautiful to the eye, it is aesthetically pleasing. You know, in our household, when we have guests over and we prepare a meal and we set out the table, we don't simply want it to provide nourishment Uh, We want it to be something that is aesthetically pleasing and that is inviting to the eye. And God does this with, the food is beautiful. You know, the the orange and the the apple and, and the strawberry. Have you ever taken a strawberry and just looked at it? I mean, what a beautiful piece of fruit to behold. The shape and the little seeds on the outside and that color and the green and it's just so lovely to behold. And, and, and it's not just beautiful, it's not just aesthetically pleasing. He says it is good for food. It is nutritious and it is delicious. It is good. And, and listen, ask this question, why is God doing this? Why does God plant a garden with food that is both beautiful and good? It's not because God is hungry and he needs to feed himself. You know, maybe this goes without saying, but I am given a theology of food. Uh, and maybe this, this theological point goes without saying, but God doesn't need to eat. And in the ancient world, this was unique from the other imaginations of the surrounding cultures that did think that God needed to eat. And one of the chief ends of man was to provide food, the, the food and care of the gods, you know. 
and, um, but not the God of Israel. There's this little text in Leviticus where it says that when the children of Israel offered their sacrifices, the, the, the aroma arose to God as a pleasing smell. But the point was is that God didn't eat the food, he just smelled it because God doesn't need to eat. You know who needs to eat? Dependent and contingent creatures. People like us who are always, every moment, independent upon something else so that we can just live another second. You depend on oxygen from the air. You depend on energy from the sun. You depend upon uh, nutrients from vegetables and proteins and fats from You depend on so much just to keep your life going. But God doesn't depend on anything because God is self-generating and God is self-existing and God is eternal and God is infinite being within God's self. He depends on nothing and no one. God is utterly different. So God doesn't plant a garden because God needs something from that garden. And God doesn't even put the people in the garden because God is lonely. No, God is infinite fullness and joy and love within God's self. God doesn't create human. You know, why did God create you? You know, it, it, it wasn't because God had a human-shaped vacuum in his heart that only you could fill. It wasn't like God is like, oh, I'm so empty in this world. You know, um, I'm, I'm so empty. I just need a Josh in my life to fulfill my lack. God is utter fullness within God's self. He lacks nothing. So then why does God create? Well, theologians say that God creates gratuitously. You know what gratuitous means? When you talk about a movie that has gratuitous violence, that means it's a movie that has unnecessary violence. It was unnecessary to the story. You didn't need it there. And God's creation is unnecessary. He doesn't need to create. Well, why does God create then? Because God is an infinite being of eternal love, and creation is an overspell of that infinite ocean of love. God says, why not? Let's call creation into being. Let's call people into being. Let's create a world that is full of goodness and beauty. Nothing around you, nothing you eat on your table, no beauty you behold is a brute fact. Nothing had to be. It was all created by God's generosity and love. He just said, why not? And that means that creation is a full and unreserved gift. And that food, the food you ate, that, that is delicious, that is beautiful to behold, it didn't have to taste that good. Like that's a gift from the hand of God. Michael Reeves put it like this. He said, there is something gratuitous about creation, an unnecessary abundance of beauty. And through its blossoms and pleasures, we can revel in the sheer largesse of the Father. And Norman Worsba put it like this. He said, food, get this, he said, food is God's love made nutritious and delicious, given for the good of each other. And so think about that next time you sit down and you enjoy a good meal, that what you are enjoying is a, it, it's a manifestation of the love of God, a God who desires to share his own beauty with his creation by enabling us to enjoy that which is beautiful. A God who enjoys to share his own infinite goodness and joy with creation 
by giving us food that creates joy in us and that is nutritious and that is good. And what is the response from a creature? What is the logical, the rational response of a creature who sits and enjoys all of this unnecessary, generous explosion of goodness and beauty? The rational and proper response is to say thank you. It is gratitude. And so we are invited to enjoy this world and all God has given us and to respond with gratitude. One more quote. This is from a theologian named Robert Capone. He said this, The uniqueness of creation is the result of the generous support and effective regard by no mean lover. He likes onions, therefore they are. The fit, the color, the taste, the smell, the tensions, the textures, the lines, the shapes of that beautiful onion are a response not to some forgotten decree that there may as well be onions as well as turnips, but to God's present delight, his intimate and immediate joy in all you have seen and in the thousand wonders you do not yet expect. And so here's the point. Be a grateful eater. You know, the Shakers, uh, which is, you know, kind of a religious group like the Quakers, and as a matter of just happy consequence or, or happy coincidence, it rhymes with Shakers, Shakers and Quakers. You can write, if you're taking notes, write that down. <laughs> but the Shakers have a practice before they eat of just pausing and sitting in silence. And they silently reflect upon this gift they're about ready to enjoy. They think about the soil and the worms in the soil and the agriculture and the animals and the plants and the people who work the land and those who, who produce and manufacture and sell the foods and the transportation and everything that it took. And then behind it all, the ultimate source of all of that productivity and all of that work and all of that goodness, which is God himself. And then they say, thank you. You know, one of the most profoundly political and, you know, like acts you can do out in public to make a public statement about where power resides in the universe is to pause and pray and to give thanks before your meals. To say thank you in the restaurant, to say thank you on your own, to say thank you at the dinner table, just to pause and God, thank you for all of this goodness, all of this beauty, all of this nutrition. None of it had to be, God, it is from your good hand. And so I respond to you as any rational, logical creature would do, and I say thank you. Now, I don't know about you, but that profoundly countercultural act doesn't always come natural to me because what comes natural to me, especially when I'm hungry and the food is hot, is I want to anxiously get everyone sitting down at the table before the meat gets cold, right? I mean, you spend all that time on it and we're going to let it get cold now? Is it? Come on. Surely I'm not the only one, you know? But there's like an anxious energy to quick get to the eating because I'm hungry. But we are invited in Scripture to pause and to be people whose lives are marked by an inner well of 
gratitude. God, thank you for all of this goodness. I am a creature in the world you have made, and all of existence that is good and beautiful and true comes ultimately from your hand, and so I will respond with thanksgiving. So be a grateful eater. But number two, we not only need to eat with gratitude. You know, the Scriptures wants to shape us into a community of people who eat with gratitude, but the Scripture also invites us to be a community that eats with awareness. Now, to, to emphasize this point, I just want to take you briefly to a section of Scripture that probably many of you haven't been to or don't spend a lot of time on, and that is Leviticus chapter 11. Come on, the food laws? It's interesting because in Leviticus chapter 11, Moses offers a subset, a very small subset of animals in the animal kingdom that were fit for Israelite consumption. Listen to how he puts it. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, say to the Israelites, of all the animals that live on land, these are the ones that you may eat. You're like, well, which ones can I eat? Well, you may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. And there are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. And you're like, okay, Lord, I get that, but I don't have that down. And by memory, like, can you be more specific? And the priests who put this together were nothing but specific. And they said, the camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is ceremonially unclean for you. The hyrax, which if you're like me, you're like, what's a hyrax? I have no idea. Fortunately, I've given you a picture. This is a hyrax. These were forbidden for Israelite consumption. <laughs> though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof, it is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, you didn't want to eat a rabbit anyway, the cute little bunny. I mean, come on. Some of you said, I love to eat rabbit. It does not have a divided hoof, it's unclean for you. The pig, oh, bacon. Though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud, it is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. And then it goes on and on through it because you're like, well, what about the camel? Then he talks about don't eat the camels. And then what about the sea creatures? He talks about what about winged birds? And it goes on and on and on for some 40-plus verses. And we're wondering, what is all of this about, you know? We're a little bit confused, you know? And most of us Christians, I think, want to move quickly past kosher laws to the New Testament, especially that passage that some of you have memorized uh, in the vision of, that God gave to Peter, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And what Peter was called to kill and eat, there were some pigs in there, and you're like, I, see, I can eat bacon. Don't tell me I can't eat shellfish, my shrimp, you know? And we want to, and, and we quickly move to the freedom that is given to us in the New Testament, and we can miss the deep set of values that are buried beneath this, this, the, the ritual law here about eating. You know, in the Old Testament, animal laws were connected with holiness. And so if they are to be a holy set-apart people, then the Israelites will need to eat a holy set-apart diet. That's why he says, I am the Lord your God. At the very end of this section, consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord, the God who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. 
And so because God is holy, his people are to be holy, and because they are to be holy, one of the ways, one of the ritual, thick ritual practices that's going to form them into being a holy, set-apart people is a holy, set-apart diet. There's going to be animals that they just can't eat. But why food laws? Like, what is it about the food laws that's supposed to inform them about their holiness? Why these restrictions? And some have supposed that maybe what's going on here is God is concerned with health and hygiene, and so he's forbidding animals that are unhealthy to eat. And maybe, that's, maybe there's some dimension there. And of course, uh, many of us in America know about diets that we think are going to make us feel better and live better. And so we are gluten-free and dairy-free and paleo and vegan and vegetarian and pagan, not like pagan who worships idols, but he who eats only fish. Pescatarian. Whatever, you pescatarians. <laughs> but we think, are we trying to promote health? And maybe there's that dimension. But I think there's something else going on here, and this is what I want to point out. I think that God is raising some awareness for the children of Israel about the practice of eating. Not just, just, just to remind them that they're set apart and not just to promote their health, but to help them cultivate awareness of the value and the sanctity of both human and animal life. And I think this is seen most clearly in the most important prohibition about food, which involves blood. And this is given to us in Leviticus 17. And it's interesting because the prohibition to eat food with blood in it came before the giving of the Mosaic Law, and it's reiterated after the giving of the Mosaic Law as part of the Gentile mission. Command those Gentiles not to drink blood. And it's there right in the middle of the law. And listen to what he says. I will set my face against any Israelite or foreigner residing among them who eats blood, and I will cut them off from the people. Uh, by the way, am I the only one that I really love Leviticus, and one day I'm going to preach through the book of Leviticus, and you're going to love it. For the life of a creature is in the blood. So he says, don't eat the blood. Why? Because the life of the creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may any foreigner residing among you eat blood. A couple verses later, he repeats that idea, for the life is in the blood. Jacob Milgram, a Jewish scholar on the book of Leviticus, said this. He said, the impurity system puts the forces of life against the forces of death, reaching an ethical summit in the blood prohibition. And so he says, what this is teaching the children of Israel is that they need to treat life, all of creaturely life, with a certain degree of reverence and respect and honor because that life ultimately owes its existence to God. Sure, you need to eat to live, and you will often need to kill to eat, but you may not kill in a way that dishonors and demeans created life. You need to respect and honor the life of these animals. 
And, you know, throughout the Torah, the Old Testament, there are laws that invite us to become a people that honor and respect the animals. And so, for example, um, uh, you know, they're, they're considered in the law, there's this law that says you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. There's another law that says you shall not boil a kid, that's the child of a goat, in its mother's milk. Like, you're like, why? The mother wouldn't know. It doesn't matter that the mother doesn't know. That's just dishonoring of that life. And so it's inviting us to be a community of people that respects and honors the life of the animals and the life of the humans that are involved in the production of food. And so these ritual laws are intended to inculcate a people that is has a respect and a reverence and an honor for life. And I just wonder if our own practices of eating, you know, where we think that meat originates in a grocery store at the meat counter, underneath, you know, it sits on a little plastic or a little styrofoam plastic, you know, some guy hands it to us. Like, long before it was sitting in that counter, it was an animal that was a creation of God. And so we human creatures that are created in God's image, that have been given stewardship and rule over God's world, do have to ask some serious questions about our entire food system, how we treat land and animals and the workers who are on that land. You know, today, no doubt, if you drive up the 101 or you drive up the 5, you'll see strawberry fields, and there'll be people out in those fields picking strawberries all day long. Who are they, and how are they treated? How did those strawberries get to your plate? We're invited to think about all of the issues of life that surround what goes on our plate. And I think that there's a good argument to be made that these Old Testament laws that seem so strange and odd and foreign to us are actually far wiser than we know. And there is a profound wisdom in the scriptures about how we live in this world if you will dig and find and resource those minds out. And so we're invited to eat with gratitude, and then we're invited to eat with awareness. And of course, those two things are tied together because the greater awareness we have about the intricacies of our food system and how what we eat wound up on our plate, the more we honor that and cherish that, the more we will realize what a gift it is that we have what we do and we'll respond to God with gratitude. So we're invited to eat with Gratitude and to eat with awareness. And then thirdly, we are, we, are, we are called to eat with an open hand. You know, I was telling my brother-in-law about this sermon yesterday, and I, I said, you know, I told him about this point about eating with an open hand. He said, yeah, but it depends on what's in our hand, right? Like if it's dark chocolate, we don't have to share that, do we? <laughs> but actually, listen to what the scripture says. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God has given you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. And there were laws that ensured that the children of Israel would do this. And so, for example, when they, would re- when they would go and they would plow their fields and they would reap their fields, God said this, when you reap the harvest of your land, these are subsistence farmers. They're eating to feed themselves and their family, their whole households. And so he says, when you're harvesting the fields of the land, don't maximize efficiency and get every last grain. He says, instead, 
Do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. And then every seven years, they were to take their land, their fields that belonged to them, that they had worked, that they had labored on, and let them lie fallow for an entire year. And then he says this, during that seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it. And the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyards and with your olive grove. He says, as you feed yourselves and your family, keep open-handed and ensure that there's at least a portion of your budget, at least a portion of what you're doing that's going to help feed people who cannot feed themselves. Do you? Do I? And of course, open-handedness doesn't stop with us giving to our resources and sharing our resources and food with those in need. It also involves us opening up our table and freely providing you know, food and, and welcoming guests into our home and doing hospitality and generously just opening up our fridge and our table, you know, uh, around our family. You know, one of, one of, our, one of our, 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 our values is that when we have guests, we want to give them the best. The best meal we've had goes to the guests. You know, you don't try to keep all the most precious stuff for yourself, but you want to open it up and extend hospitality and welcome them in so that they can share in all of that goodness. And so he says, eat not only with gratitude and not only with awareness of all of this, but eat with an open hand. And I think in an interesting way, when we eat generously like this, we are reflecting the generosity of God, our creator, who himself, as an act of his love, shares with us what is good and beautiful. And when we share with our neighbors and our friends and strangers good and beautiful food, we participate in the generosity and the love of our creator who joyfully does that with his creation. Finally, and we're going to close with this, and uh, I want to invite our band to come up because this is a fairly quick point, but it's going to take us right to the table. So the, the scriptures, as we immerse our heart and our imagination in them, will shape and form us to be particular kinds of eaters who eat with gratitude and who eat with awareness and who eat with generosity and open-handedness. But we also will be people that realize that we have been invited to come and eat with Jesus. You know, one of the core features of the ministry of Jesus, as we pointed out earlier, was the fact that he ate with sinners. It was his, his open table that was so characteristic of him. And the people around him who were religious didn't like who Jesus ate with because it implied to, to, to them that Jesus accepted these people and he, he welcomed them in. That means he approves of everything they do. And so they were judgmental of who Jesus was eating with and they criticized him like this. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know, to share a meal would be to share your life, to say that you were in, you were welcomed in, I love you, you can be a part of my family. And they were like, why is Jesus welcoming those people to his table and into fellowship? That shouldn't be. They're not good enough, not religious enough, not clean enough. They've done too much, you know, nastiness in their lives, and Jesus welcomes them 
at his table and says, you can come in and have fellowship with me. And they're like, how could you? Why would you do that? And Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus welcomes sinners to his table. And you know, after Christ was put in the tomb, three days later, he rose up from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And Christ is alive and reigning at the Father's right hand today. And the presence of Christ by his Spirit is with us, his people. And Jesus, who in his bodily life on earth welcomes sinners at his table, through the Lord's Supper is continuing to invite sinners to come dine with him, to fellowship with him. And so we're invited as we close out our service together to come once again to this table and to share in these elements, the bread and the cup, that Christ has given to us, these elements of the Passover meal that Jesus then redefined around himself. And as he ate with his disciples, he said, these elements that you're sharing that always reminded you of the old Exodus, I am reorienting around my own life and work and ministry. And now, as you go take this gospel into every tribe and and tongue and nation and people, he says, you can welcome them to my table. You share in this practice because I am still the God who welcomes sinners to come and to eat with me. So we're going to close out our service today by sharing in the Lord's Supper, by eating this bread and by drinking this cup. And the God who in the original creation was pleased as a manifestation of his love to provide us that which is beautiful and good, has in the incarnation of Christ come among us to provide us that which is beautiful and good and nourishing and healing and will sustain our lives. And so come to this table this morning. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have done that which is infinitely good and beautiful In a stunning act of love, you have given yourself in your son Jesus fully and unreservedly for our healing and our redemption and our reconciliation. You sent your son Jesus into this world who welcomes sinners at his table so that you might welcome us through Christ to your table into fellowship and relationship with you. And I pray, God, that even now as we partake of these elements and we eat this bread and drink this cup, that you would nourish and sustain us in the grace of our Lord Jesus. And it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen.